If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer's getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. By the time it takes extremist special interest groups and politicians to build me a house, I could construct my own with my bare hands. I'd better start now. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 2.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Welcome to the fun. Some stuff going on today. It's kind of one of those, um, you know, early uh, uh, weekdays, kind of a, a bit of a gray day, uh, but very mild outside in case you haven't noticed. So, um, yeah, that's a good thing, at least anyway. It makes for going out and looking for the Christmas tree or putting up the Christmas lights or whatever it is that you uh, still have to do. Uh, certainly uh, worth your while. All right. Some sad news. Uh, in the entertainment business uh, coming up, uh, uh, coming out overnight. Uh, Kirstie Alley has uh, passed away at the age of 71 and had a, a, an illness with cancer. But boy, certainly one of those figures who, uh, how long did cheer, Cheers run? Uh, it just, it seemed for years and years and years. When you start getting members of the cast turning over, uh, here and there, then you know you've got, uh, a, a heck of a long run. And, uh, w- was great on the show and, and just very much a part of that era and a part of, uh, that whole, uh, uh period in time with the big hair and, uh, and all that sort of thing. And it's funny because, you know, you watch the show now. What do you think of it? Cause it, it's odd when you go back. And you start watching old shows and you think, oh, my goodness, like that would never fly now. Um, that's different than uh, different speak than what we do now. Uh, this is more politically correct than that. What have you? And, um, you know, it's interesting shows that uh, that ran for long periods of time sometimes don't always translate uh, into uh, other areas. Uh, this one, for the most part, I guess, I don't know, I guess it depends on which way you came from it. Uh, some people still fans. Uh, some people, of course, uh, will be fans for life, actually go and visit the bar and, and so on and so forth. So um, uh, obviously taken from us way too soon. And Bill Brio, TV critic and author, is with us now and has a fabulous article article on Kirstie Alley uh, on Brio.tv right now, and Bill is with us. Bill, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing fine, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and great piece that you've got on your website about all of this. You really capture all aspects of of this lady, of this actress. Uh, Incredibly funny, red hot on Cheers, but a a difficult life, uh, a colorful life. Yeah, you know, she... um Certainly, you know, it's amazing, Scott. It was over 40 years now that when she sort of burst onto the scene in The Wrath of Khan, the Star Trek mm. movie. Uh, incredible that much time has passed. But, yeah, it was Cheers that really put her on the map. Uh, and then, you know, in the later part of her career, she battled uh, many things, you know, some uh, drug addiction and weight gain and uh, a lot of she's always on the tabloid front page over something or other, Scientology. And um the last uh, one of the last things she did was a show called Fat Actress, which I don't think they would dare put that title out there today. Talk about that and why that went at the time, why controversial uh, now. And, and is that good or bad? <laughs> well, you know, it was, it's an interesting question. You know, she did this series. She had some fame, obviously, with her TV shows. She did a show, Veronica's Closet. 
And then she was getting older and um, she was getting heavier and she just felt she would never get a sitcom again. And the tabloids did uh, shame her really relentlessly. And I think at one point she just decided that, well, you know, I got to lean into this and sort of goof on it. And Fat Actress was a show sort of like Curb Your Enthusiasm. It was uh, her and her friends, and they included John Travolta, who she was in those Look Who's Talking films with, mm-hmm. and some of the Cheers cast. And uh, so it was a mix of reality and and scripted show. But it was basically about how this actress uh, was a little past her prime and a little too heavy for TV and how she was coping with all of that. Uh, work, why not? Uh, all of those questions, why not now? Um, I don't know now. I think that, um, that, you know, really the, the, the cheesy, what's the word, the queasy, the part of the mm. show that doesn't really fly is, yeah, there's just something about it. That's a little disturbing. Now, if you go on the learning channel, the so-called learning channel, TLC, you can watch my 600 pound bride or, you know, there's all yeah. kinds of shows that are just as um soul destroying <laughs> but um i just think in this case um that it's just such a relentless uh barrage of uh, negative things that uh it, it the times are a little more woke and I, mm. I think people are more sensitive to issues uh like this uh pretty courageous to sort of take that stand and she was always one to never shy away from stuff she she would be front and center if she had an opinion yeah and that's why i wrote about this because i was at this press session for fat actress in 2005 and i i you know reading back at the transcript i felt a little embarrassed to have been part of the group that was asking her when did you get fat and how fat are you now and did you you know hmm. like it was the very insensitive questions really. Um, but I, I do think that um, it's, it's fascinating uh, to see her take that on and that she had just decided. Uh, and I guess that was who she was. She was someone who was sort of frank and honest. If you read the tributes to her now, uh, the last day or two from her friends and colleagues, they loved her and they mm. loved hanging with her and they really admired her. And so uh, it's a very different portrait of someone than if you just think of these tabloid headlines over the years. Why was Cheer so successful? Obviously, a large ensemble cast, each one their own character. Uh, why did this work? You know, just listening when you played the theme song there, it was all there in that, you know, did you want to go to a place where everyone knows your name? You know, like it's it's such a, mm. it's like friends. Do you want to hang yeah. out with friends? And And I just think that, Cheers was the place that you wanted to hang out with and that you really came to uh, love these characters. And uh, and also it was funny. It was so well written. Uh, the characters were great. Woody, the bartender, uh, you know, obviously uh, Fraser Crane went on to do his own series. Yeah. But, uh, you know, George just talking about, uh, uh, you know, having wearing milk dog biscuit shorts <laughs> like it. It just was a funny, funny show. And, you know, many thought once Shelley Long left, uh, the, played the character originally, that things would change or play had the uh, the position in the show. Uh, did you think she ever regretted giving that up? Oh, yeah. I think her accountant probably regretted it. <laughs> uh, you know, but I, I think that that's the remarkable thing about Christie Alley. Usually when somebody like that, that show was Sam and Diane the first five years. Will yeah. they, won't they? And then suddenly 
Diane leaves and in comes, you know, this new character, Rebecca Howe, played by Kirstie Alley. The fact that she was able to fill those big uh, shoes and do it and stay on the show even longer than Shelley yeah. Long, that's a big tribute to Kirstie Alley. Uh, an amazing show and uh, an amazing run with. Is that one of how long did it run? Was it the longest show? What is the longest show? Oh, my God. I think uh, The Simpsons has been on 34 years. The Cheers, I think, is in, ran 11 seasons, and I think Frasier 9, or I may have that reversed. Altogether, there was 20 years consecutive of that character, Dr. Frasier Crane. But, uh, you know, it was on a long, long time on NBC, part of what became their must-see TV lineup. Hmm. Bill Brio with us, TV critic, author, and uh, check out his blog, Brio.tv, a beautiful piece on Kirstie Alley, who passed away at the age of 71. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. The Auditor General, Federal Auditor General, uh, Karen Hogan, has said uh, after looking at uh, the federal books post-COVID-19, billions of dollars in in, in, in ineligible COVID-19 benefit payments are at risk of going uncollected because the federal government is doing a poor job of identifying individuals and businesses that should be forced to pay back funds. Uh, the AG found that $4.6 billion in overpayments to ineligible recipients, as well as an additional $27 billion that should be investigated further, uh, with the $27.4 billion, the minimum amount that should be investigated. You remember uh, during the height of the pandemic, $210 billion in payments went out as the economy was forced to shut down or scale back during the pandemic. Uh, the whole idea, the prime minister said, was get it out the door and, you know, stuff that isn't legit will get up, uh, will get back later. Uh, clearly, that's not the case, so says the Auditor General. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, and is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing very well, thanks. Uh, Ian, I remember you chatting about this and concerned about this. You saw this coming, uh, but get the money out the door. Get the money out the door. We'll worry about it later. And obviously, we're not really worrying about it later, it appears. You're absolutely right. Um, I was critical from the get-go, partly because I'd lived in Ottawa all my life. I have many friends over the years, including my late father, who was 42 years in the government of Canada. My partner was there for 35 years. My PhD is in public policy studying, guess what, budgeting and spending. And, and, and I worked in the uh, Privy Council Office for the Prime Minister of Canada when I was doing my PhD. Um, and uh, I've been in the budget lockups. And so, you know, I have a very good understanding of what goes on in Ottawa in terms of policy and so forth. And as soon as they said, we'll do, we'll shovel out the money out the door, we'll worry about it after, I thought, <laughs> you just don't, you don't do that with money. You don't. And I was in a bank for nine years. You always have to have checks and balances and lots of due diligence around money because you when you offer essentially free money without uh, checks and safeguards at the front end of getting the money, some people will act badly. We are not all angels, as Abraham Lincoln said. We are not all, you know, choir boys all destined to go to heaven. You know, there's some of us do bad things when we're tempted. And that's why when you have things like, you know, uh, unemployment insurance checks or old age pension, you have to provide documentation to the government before they give you the money. Let me play devil's advocate here. Let me play devil's advocate, Ian, here. You know, you you can't hold back from everybody else just because one or two are taking a bit out of the pot. Um, You know, the important thing is to save the majority. Is that does that hold water here? Well, I'll tell you why I don't think it does. Um, And uh, and I'm going to give you very hard uh, information. 
uh, back in the 1990s, a third of a century ago, some character by the name of Brian Mulroney set up the GST. And so he and his ministers said, to make it more palatable to uh, the rest of us and to social critics, don't worry, we're going to look after low-income people so we don't whack them with the GST. We're going to set up a system of rebates. People said, how on earth are you going to do that? And they said, easy. We know how much each person makes because they file a tax return. Oh, my goodness. CRA has been around since, or its predecessor, since 1917 when we set up the first tax uh, act of Canada, tax uh, system of Canada, income tax. And so they set up the system, and then later government digitized, as we know, in the early the, uh, part of the 21st century, or in the 1905, 1910, sorry, 25, around 25, 2005, 2010, we uh, digitized everything. Governments went completely online. So did CRA. And now they have awesome, and I mean awesome data, on all of us. If you want the figures, 30.5 million people filed tax returns. And as everybody knows, because we all file tax returns listening, you have to tell them your name, your address, your SIN number, your date of birth, your address, your bank account, etc. And that data is used and has been used for a third of a century to send out very targeted money called the GST rebate check. And then along came Mr. Trudeau with the carbon tax. And he said, I want to send rebates using the same system. It's the same system we would use if we established a negative income tax. Instead of having the taxpayer sending the money into the government via their employer, what the, the pipeline goes into reverse, and the right. CRA sends the money out to the taxpayer. They could have very, very, when I say easily, the system's there. They don't have to program it, set up a new infrastructure. Canada Revenue Agency exists. It's not a figment of my imagination or of textbook theory. It really does exist, and they collect 400 billion dollars a year. That's the revenues of the government of Canada. So they're very good at it, by the way. And this system is very uh, efficient. It's all digitized. And they can literally, with, a, with the internal, the people that have access to the database, they can tell you how many people are making below 5000 a year, 10000 a year, 15000 a year, whatever, whatever. They so why didn't they do that, Ian? I'll tell you why they didn't. Once you set the system up, it just flows. It's automatic. There's no speeches, there's no ribbon cutting, there's no prime minister right. the microphone saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And, oh, I have another program to announce today. And the cameras are all going click, click, click. And, oh, Mr. Trudeau, tell us about this new program. And then you do one every two weeks, and it gives you another announceable. And the announceable brings the media and gives you attention to the people of Canada. So they say, hey, look, our people are at work in Ottawa. They're working very hard. They're looking. They've got our back, as they said, and, and, and we're going to be uh, saved. They could have achieved, and the argument was, we couldn't set up the system in time. Mr. Trudeau said that over and over. And, and my answer is, the irony is that the CRA system is up and running. It hmm. does exist. It's been around for dozens and half a century or more, and it took them a couple of months to set up these temporary COVID bureaucracies, as I call them, the COVID benefits bureaucracies, to create websites and application forms and blah, blah, blah. They could have been sending out those checks within easily seven days, 10 days, 14 days through the CRA, but it wouldn't have produced any announceables. I mean, does any, mm. does any prime minister or cabinet minister go out every month and say, I want to hold an announcement to announce that we sent out some more GST rebates checks today? They've been doing it every month for 30 years. 
So there's no announceable. There's no political benefit. The money just flows out of Ottawa from the CRA to those people below a certain income, and they get their GST rebate. Somebody listening to this show right now will know what I'm talking about, or they get a carbon tax rebate. And it's the very, it doesn't matter what label you put on it. It's the infrastructure, the digital infrastructure. They know your bank account. Hmm. They know your name. They know your Yeah, the carbon tax is a great example of that. Absolutely. So is there any way to get this money back now? Or is that gone? It's, it's, well, the thing is, the prime minister, the, uh, somebody was saying the other day, one, uh, a taxpayer, saying, oh, I got 15000 and now I can, I'm not going to have a terrible Christmas because I can't pay it. You know, I don't even have money to pay back this money that they, by the way, should not have gotten in the first place. And so he said, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to... I, so what I'm trying to say is I, I don't think that the government wants to pressure people to pay it back. I think they're going to end up quietly, as much as they can quietly, write it off. And, and why I, I, people can say, well, what's wrong with you, Ian? Why do you care? The government's not going to go broke. And no, it's not. This is not going to bankrupt the government of Canada. The government of Canada can print money, for God's sake. What is wrong with it is this. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people, millions of people, pay their taxes and pay it on time. They play by the rules of the system. And then they see some people gaming the system. It's called cheating in the old days, <laughs> using old-fashioned language. And, you know, it's like shoplifting. And, uh, and they're misappropriating funds that they, you know, or, or skipping on their taxes and, and getting away with it. And people say, wait a minute, the game's rigged. Why should I pay my taxes? If I know other people are gaming and getting away with it with the blessing of the prime minister, it corrodes confidence in the integrity of the system. That's why I'm so critical. The 200 or 300 billion or 30 billion or whatever, it, that's not going to bankrupt the government of Canada. It, I assure you it's not. <laughs> but I'm, it, what it does, we have a self-reporting system. Hmm. And, and we're very proud of that, that Canadians, that we don't send you know, people out to spy on you and investigate. Everyone reports their taxes on their own by filing a tax return. This is going to undermine the integrity and the confidence of the system when people think that there's people out there scamming the system and getting away with billions of dollars of free money paid for by the taxpayers of all the people that are playing by the rules. That's what's wrong with this. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about the Auditor General's report and COVID benefits that will or look like they will go uncollected. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. Lots of chatter about uh, inflation, obviously, and the uh, the price of food, uh, whether it's the products uh, because of shortages uh, through supply chain, this, that, or the other. Um, obviously, prices are going through the roof, and the grocery store chains are being accused uh, or facing allegations of price gouging because we know that they have made uh, some pretty good profits through the global pandemic, as everybody stated home and just learn how to bake bread so um are these accurate um i don't know um we've talked to business professors and um and and they have given us one angle let's bring in Alyssa freeman pr and pop culture expert she is with us now Alyssa. thanks for the time i hope you're well Yes, doing well. Thank you, Scott. So what are your thoughts on this? Um, you know, we all remember that um, the price was frozen, uh, apparently saving Canadians about $500 million this year uh, over the, co- the course of the holiday season and such. But if you're the grocery store, what's your, what's your reasoning? What's your answer here? 
You know what? All I know, Scott, is that when I go buy my nice bag of romaine with the, you know, with the one with the three heads of lettuce in yeah. it, it's ten ninety nine. Yeah, from three yeah. ninety nine. You know, you've got to give your head a shake. I mm-hmm. go to my dry cleaners this morning and say, "So, how are you?" She goes, "I'm just working so I can pay my grocery bill." Yeah. Scott, it's all everybody's talking about. I don't care what walk of life you're from. You are still shocked when you're walking through the grocery store. And I see it in the aisles. People are picking things up and putting them back and looking absolutely dazed and confused. And I saw in the news last night that they were talking to uh, one of the senior management from uh, Loblaw uh, about this particular, you know, the pricing. And is this greedflation? Is this price gouging? And they vehemently deny that that is not what's going on. But it's not like some of these grocery stores have a great track record do you remember Breadgate? yeah uh, you know when they were inflating the price of bread i mean and i believe it was also with milk uh, i i don't think that grocery stores have the confidence of canadians that they are not gouging them and that they are not reaping huge profits of it uh, from them and what's more is that i don't think that if grocery stores don't want to be under fire then what they really need to do is message on how they're helping their customers, how they're helping Canadian consumers who basically rely on them for the very the very basic necessities of life. Obviously, you just brought up a valid point. They're supplying the the basic necessities of life. But, you know, and I'm playing devil's advocate here. Everything is going up. We went out and bought a Christmas tree the other day, and they're up 20% from what they were last year, and they're smaller. (laughs) So, I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. But did you hit the nail on the head there when you said this is something you can't do without? But, you know, compared to everything else, isn't it the same? Yes, it is. I mean, there is inflation everywhere with absolutely everything. If you go out with your family for dinner, I mean, if you go get pick up three yeah. uh, quarter chicken dinners, white meat with from Swiss meat. Chalet and a soup, that's going to cost you 60 bucks before tax. So, you know, Swiss Chalet used to be a value meal. Even a value meal, Scott, which used to be $1.99, mm-hmm. is now $5.99, which is still a deal. It's still value, but it's not a dollar ninety-nine. So everybody has had to adjust. And I and I realize, and I think that a lot of Canadians realize that, you know, we're not out of the woods yet with respect to supply chain. Um, within the I think that with respect to the romaine lettuce, I believe that there was some disease running through uh mm-hmm. with lettuce growers in California, and that's the reason for that. I mean, there's a reason for almost everything. But the one thing that we do. Almost every week, maybe a couple times a week, is you go to the grocery store and it's not getting any cheaper. It's only going to get more expensive. And it actually does cause a lot of people a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. So are they getting the brunt of this because they appear to be turning a profit while everybody's suffering? You know, listen, everybody deserves to to make money, Scott, and everybody deserves to make a profit. And I think that they are bearing the brunt because people just can't believe the prices. So who are they going to blame? Right. Who are they going to blame? Are they going to blame the government for the price of milk or, uh, you know, for the, you know, the price of a can of beans? No. Are you going to go running to the manufacturer and scream at them? No. You're going to go to the person right in front of you with the big sign on the building that you just walked in. And while the grocery stores may well be dealing with the same sort of prices, for example, we know somebody who is a uh, fruit and vegetable um, exporter. And I can tell you right now that a case of lettuce is about $10,000 or what I mean the price for even people just to buy yeah. even stores just to buy the products wholesale is also going up 
what these grocery stores need to do is better message why the prices are higher and to deflect blame or to educate the consumer that not only, you know, they are also paying more for the product. So when you pay more for the product, it everybody understands yeah. that at the end of the day, you're also going to pay more. So I think that grocery stores need to do a better job of messaging just what's going on with the pricing in their own stores. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, the price of groceries and allocations of price gouging towards grocers. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too, Scott. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. uh, As you know, the inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act uh, regarding the Freedom Convoy protest uh, has has come and gone. We're now waiting for the report, which should come out uh, probably in February or such. A new survey from Nanos found that two in three Canadian say they support or at least to some degree support the use of the act to talk more about all of this nick nanos with us uh, data sci- chief data scientist and founder of nanos research and is with us now nick thank you for your time hope you're doing well i'm fine great to join you and all your listeners so uh, the CSIS director said, um, uh, although they didn't meet the legal criteria to call the Emergencies Act, he recommended using it, in my words here, to clean up the mess. Do Canadians feel the same way here? Yeah, I think for a lot of Canadians, they just wanted the uh, the Freedom Convoy protest to end. And, you know, in the survey that we did with the Globe and Mail, it suggested about 48% outright supported invoking the Emergency Act and another 18% somewhat supported. Of note, 23% or almost one out of every four Canadians outright opposed using the uh, Emergency Act and another 7% somewhat opposed. So a bit of a division, but overall, the majority supported using the Emergency Act. And I would hazard to say that for average Canadians who are not legal experts and not experts on security, that's all they know is that invoking the Act was the beginning of the end of the protest. And I right. think that's probably why they're good with that. And obviously, this talks about something that ran three weeks. We saw it build and build and build till obviously it got out of hand to the uh, the degree that we saw. Is that the end of it for Canadians? Um, you know, we needed it to clean up the mess, so it's justified in that respect. Or it, are we concerned about what happened three weeks prior to that and how it actually got to that point where we needed to do this? Well, I think Canadians are concerned about whether this will happen again or whether it will yeah. be as much of, why don't we just use the fiasco word, whether it will be as much of a fiasco, especially from a, a policing perspective. And I think that's probably, Canadians are probably more interested in learning about, okay, so what's going to happen so that this doesn't occur again? Canadians don't have an issue with protests, right? Like that's part of our democracy. But something like this was, was quite different. And I would put, there was even an extra dimension once those, uh, the Freedom Convoy protesters blocked the border to the U.S. I think that really put it on the agenda for a lot of Canadians. Mm. And I think in terms of invoking the, the Emergency Act, once the border was disrupted or could have been disrupted, I think that that was really what escalated things in terms of, of appetite for uh, for the federal government to intervene. Are Canadians convinced that there is a plan B in place now? I mean, we all remember um, uh, the Ottawa police chief uh, getting the brunt of all of this, uh, thinking that it would come into town and then go out the other side by the end of the weekend, didn't really pay attention to a lot of the intelligence, and and then obviously didn't have a plan B in place when that didn't happen. Do you think Canadians are convinced that now we know what to do? 
No, I don't think so. And I and you know, in research, we did you know part of the research that was sponsored by CTV News asked about you know our preparedness for the future, the police's preparedness to respond in the future, and is much it's much more of a mixed bag. So, you know, there's much more division on that. Where you know the the reality is is that there's no consensus coming out of this that we're we're ready if something else like this transpired. And you know, there, it is possible that we could have another uh, protest similar probably different, but as something similar in the future, just because the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the Freedom Convoy protest was successful. When I say it was successful, you know, if you're a protester, you're there to get your message out and to disrupt things. And you know what? The Freedom Convoy protest accomplished that. They got their agenda on the national agenda. They had the focus of Canadians right across the country, whether Canadians agreed with them or not, and they were able to disrupt the government. So, uh, you know, not a big surprise that there might be others that look at this as a bit of a model. Do you think Canadians were surprised at the beginning of this? And again, we all know that Ottawa, pretty much every weekend, there's some sort of protest or something going on. Are you surprised that for a, a nation's capital, and, and you know, we understand there's jurisdiction issues with different various police services and such, but are you surprised that there wasn't a, I don't know, what do you want to call it, uh, an emergencies act, a terrorist plan, a something in place? So if something does go awry, that there is some sort of plan B or template to bring all of these uh, people together. And like you said, I don't think Canadians are convinced that that's been solved at all. We're, yeah. We've got lots of discussion over whether we should have called the act or not, but no discussion over whether the problem's been solved. Yeah, and I think for a lot of Canadians, it treated like a car crash. You know what? They're, you, you know what it's like when people drive it on the 401 and then you notice that traffic is slowing down and yeah. then you find out, hey, there's not an accident on my side of the 401. It's people rubbernecking looking at the accident on the other side. Hmm. And so I say that Canadians are attracted and we're attracted and repelled. Attracted because it's like, I can't believe I'm watching this. And repelled as kind of like, okay, this has got to end. This has got to stop because it can't keep going on. And, uh, and I think that's kind of the, the interesting dynamic that Canadians had because I think they were expecting something to happen. And then like day after day yeah. after day, nothing happened. And then, after the Emergency Act was invoked, Canadians saw stuff happen, and it, it was the beginning of uh, the end of the, uh, the truckers' convoy. So who do you think they blame, Nick? Is it, We only got a few seconds left. Do they blame the OPS for this? No, actually, it looks like people are still blaming the truckers in general for this, followed by the government of Canada. So it's like 46, you know, that worst impression of the truckers, and 23, mm -hmm. the government of Canada. But there are a lot of people that just blame everybody for this, top to bottom, truckers, government, police. City of Ottawa, Government of Ontario, everyone. So I think there's a lot of uh, anger to spread around everyone that was involved in this. Boy, isn't that the truth. Nick Danos with us, Chief Data Scientist and founder of Nanos Research, talking about our thoughts on the Emergencies Act and its inquiry. Nick, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. A Quebec civilian judge has acquitted Major General Danny Fortin of sexual assault over an allegation that dates back to 1988. Uh, judge Richard Meredith said he believes the complaint, uh, the complainant was sexually assaulted, but said the Crown did not establish beyond a reasonable doubt that it was Fortin who assaulted her. Uh, Fortin was the military officer in charge of the federal government's COVID-19 vaccine rollout until May of 2021, but then was removed from that position after this allegation came to light. To talk more about all of this, Retired Lieutenant Colonel Rory Fowler is with us now. Rory, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
I'm doing well, Scott. How are you doing? Good. So, your thoughts on how this all played out, um, and and the judge, uh, the crown, saying um, did not establish beyond a reasonable doubt that it was uh, Fortin who assaulted her, but the judge believed that she was sexually assaulted. What are your thoughts on this? Well, what you have to look at is ultimately what was the issue that was contested in the trial. So, Major General Fortin wasn't alleging that the sexual assault never occurred um, because he says he wasn't there. So how could he know whether or not it occurred? The main point of contention in the trial was the identity of the person who assaulted the unnamed complainant. And even though everybody's been talking about, well, the judge made his determination based upon the criminal burden of proof, which is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, what this really turned on was the reliability of the evidence from both Danny Forte and the unnamed complainant. And in terms of that one crucial element of the offense, the identity of the person who assaulted the complainant, the judge, Judge Meredith, ruled that he found the complainant was not reliable and he found no problems with the testimony of Danny Forte. And so even though the burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt, what this really turned on was the credibility of the evidence pertaining to the identity of the assailant. And that's important for what may now arise in the administration of the affairs of the Canadian forces. Because if you don't have reliable evidence of the identity of the, the assailant, uh, then even if you're evaluating something on a civil burden of proof, balance of probabilities, if the evidence that is before you is not reliable, uh, then you can't even make a determination on that lower threshold. Uh, so is this, as uh, as General is saying, a case of mistaken identity or just not enough evidence or conflicting evidence before the judge? No, it's not that it's conflicting evidence. It's that the evidence of the identity pertaining to Danny Fortain was not reliable. So the judge was faced with, Danny Fortain's testimony that said, where he said, it wasn't me, right? Uh, which the judge found credible, and the evidence of the complainant, which the fa judge found not credible. And, and to be clear, it's not that Judge Meredith was finding that the complainant was not truthful. Uh, judge Meredith essentially you know, went to great length in his judgment to identify that for a variety of factors, including inconsistencies between uh, the testimony of the complainant at trial and the statements that she made to the military police who investigated the allegations, that the complainant was not reliable, that her recollection and her observation at the material time 34 years ago uh, was not reliable. So it's not simply contesting evidence. It's one person was reliable and the other person was not reliable when it came to the identity or whether or not Major General Forte uh, was the person who committed the, the uh, assault. Uh, so, and, and as a result, it's not just an acquittal based on, uh, on a, uh, uh, a determination beyond reasonable doubt. It really falls to the reliability of the evidence that's been placed before the judge. Uh, so what happens now, Rory, um, uh, with the case moving forward? Is that it? Uh, is there room for appeal? Uh, and also what happens to, um, uh, to 410 moving forward? Well, the, the, under the criminal code, the Crown has up to 60 days uh, as of right to decide whether or not they're going to appeal. I'll be frank with you. I would be shocked 
if the crown appealed. Um, the, the, the judgment given by Judge Meredith was fairly comprehensive. And frankly, the evidence, because of the various inconsistencies, both inconsistencies between various statements that the complainant made and the lack of corroboration from other witnesses, uh, would tend to indicate that there aren't grounds for appeal. Now, the, that doesn't mean that the Crown doesn't have the right to seek an appeal, but I would be surprised if the, the Crown appealed. Uh, and there's up to 60 days to do so. So I anticipate that there might be a delay by any decisions made by Canadian forces decision makers with respect to administrative action where they will wait for that 60 days uh, to elapse. Um, but what we also have to bear in mind is that 19 months ago, uh, General Fortin was not just removed from his position as the Vice President of the Public Health Authority of Canada, or PHAC. Uh, there were two separate decisions made, or in fact, one decision and one uh, absence of a decision. So one, he was removed, and it would appear based upon uh, decision-making by the Prime Minister, the Minister of Health, and the Minister of National Defence. He was removed from the position, uh, the secondment as Vice President of PHAC. But after that, no decision was made about any other job for him. So even though he was removed from a secondment to PHAC, that didn't mean that it wouldn't have been feasible to place him into a, another position commensurate with his rank and experience. But no such decision was made. And indeed, for the last 19 months, he has, in effect, uh, been relieved from performance of military duty, even though the relevant decision maker, which would be the chief of the defense staff, did not turn his mind, or there's no evidence that he turned his mind, um, to actually relieving Major General Fortain from performance of military duty under the relevant provision under the Queen's regulations and orders for the Canadian forces, which is specifically Article 101.09. And so we have a situation where, de facto, Major General Fortain was relieved from performance of military duty, but the proper process under QR no Article 101.09 was not followed. In other hmm. words... There was no procedural fairness, and the decision was inherently unreasonable because the CDS didn't turn his mind to that provision. So, obviously, this is going to have to wait for 60 days until we see whether there's an appeal or not. Um, it sounds like there's certainly restitution to be paid. Could you see him getting his job back? The, the unfortunate thing is that over the last few years, the track record of senior CF decision makers and senior governmental decision makers, when it comes to allegations of sexual misconduct by CF members, is that many of these decisions are driven not by reasonableness, not by procedural fairness, but by fear. Uh, fear from those uh, by those decision makers of the public response if they're not perceived to be acting immediately, decisively, and in a manner that will, in their minds, withstand public scrutiny. The problem is that many of the decisions that have been made, not just for general officers, those are the ones that we see. Those are the ones uh, that attract the public attention. But several more junior members of the Canadian Forces have also been subject to similar decisions. And those decisions quite frequently are not procedurally fair and often are not reasonable. And that's because the decision makers, the statutory decision makers, are responding out of fear. They're responding out of concern about how things will appear, what they might refer to as optics. And that doesn't necessarily lend itself to fair or reasonable decision making. And so what I would hope would happen 
is that the relevant decision makers, and we're talking about the Prime Minister, the Minister of National Defense, and the Chief of the Defense Staff, will start to make reasonable decisions, will start to make procedurally fair decisions. Unfortunately, hope is not a method. And the track record that they've demonstrated over the past few years doesn't leave me with a great deal of confidence that they will suddenly start acting reasonably and suddenly start acting fairly. Lieutenant Colonel retired Rory Fowler with us on uh, the case of Major General Denny Fortan being uh, acquitted of sexual assault allegations dating back to 1988. Rory, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we certainly know where we are with our health care system. Uh, we were determined we were going to fix it during the height of a global pandemic. And still our poor health care workers are on their knees trying to get through uh, what was left of a global pandemic. And now a surge in illnesses specifically around kids, whether it's the flu, uh, whether it's the respiratory virus or, or such. Uh, and, and now obviously shortages of medication as well. Well, putting an awful lot of stress on our healthcare system. We've got a lot of sick kids uh, on our hands. What can we do? And and what about a flu shot? Because normally, when you think of flu shots, I don't know. It was usually for older people or people that were middle aged. Is it worth something? Is it worth investigating something for the kids uh, as well? Considering where we are in this post pandemic world, let's bring in Dr. Iris Gor- uh, Gorfinkel, family doctor, vaccine researcher, founder of Prime Health Research and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Many thanks for having me, Scott. So is there a need for kids to get flu shots here? I always thought that flu shots were for the vulnerable. I guess that could be kids now in this case. Uh, But for those that are a bit older, should kids be getting flu shots? Scott, I'm going to take you by the hand, and I'm going to walk 10 feet from where I now sit. The waiting room is packed. People are waiting. They're coughing. Yes, they've got masks on. But how many of them are kids? About a third of them. And the parents are worried. They're taking time off work to look after their sick child. And I'm afraid that some of them are quite sick right now. They're trying to avoid the 10-hour, what am I saying, 10-hour, 15-hour waits that they're seeing in the pediatric emergency rooms. I heard you ask, should kids get the flu shot? Yes, that's been the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations. NASA's recommendation for many years running. Six months, starting from the age of six, all children should be getting vaccine, vaccinated against the flu starting from the age of six months. And what does that do? It reduces their likelihood of winding up in a hospital by 75%, a massive reduction. And what do you know? The strain going around this year is influenza A, And the vaccine happens to be very well matched to it. So here we've got a super powerful vaccine that's effective and safe in kids. And yet, I ask you, how many kids in Ontario six months to five years of age have received the shot? That's my pop quiz. Uh, I would say not many, and, and but you know you bring up a valid point. But again, are, am I far off in thinking that? And, and perhaps, as you mentioned, Nasi has been recommending this, but I, I'm not sure we're all getting the message. Uh, many remember that you know prior to a global pandemic, uh, the flu shot uh, wasn't quite effective, um, you know, because obviously the virus uh, changes over time, but it still, of course, offers ample protection. 
And I remember when vaccinations were in the R&D mode, we thought, man, if we could get something at least as good as that, we'd be good. And of course, the vaccines proved to be even even uh, better than that. Is this a message that Canadians are getting that and, and perhaps will this what we're going through now change the attitude about getting younger people vaccinated? Well, let's just hope that keeping their child away from the emergency room is a pretty good incentive because less than one in 10 kids under five have received that flu shot. You know, so we know they're highly effective. We know it's well matched. We know the side effects are minimal. But you're right. In a good year, a vaccine, a flu shot will protect against cases getting the disease by 60 percent. That's a good year. It typically is anywhere between 40 and 60 percent. But this year, we know the circulating strain is H3N2. That is one of two types of influenza A, which happens to be a more deadly strain. And we know that the vaccine is very well matched to it. So we're anticipating that this year, the numbers may be better. Is it perfect? No, but it certainly beats sitting in an emergency room waiting with a bunch of other sick kids. All right, doctor. So what's the message you're trying to get out specifically to parents and kids regarding getting your kids vaccinated, whether it is um, a, a flu shot or even a booster for COVID? Yeah, so we should be vaccinating children right from the age of six months. They're not getting hospitalized to COVID-19. That's not what's doing it. There's two diseases which are causing the hospitalizations in children. Mm. One is RSV, for which we have no vaccine. The other is influenza, for which we have a very good vaccine. And I think one of the major barriers has been the kids have to go to the vaccine. Now, pharmacists can vaccinate children, but many parents are more comfortable to have a family doctor do it. But many family doctors do have it in their offices. I'm personally starting a program called Adopt a Daycare, where we're trying to match doctors and nurse practitioners to the daycare of their choice. I'm vaccinating the, the daycare my kids went to, and it's a pleasure to go and do it. We had 36 people sign up within 24 hours. You know, so it's, it's, it's super exciting, and we're looking forward to a very successful vaccination program with that. Uh, adoptadaycare.ca to find out more. Adoptadaycare.ca to find out more. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel with us, family doctor, vaccine researcher, and founder of Prime Health Research, talking about getting your kids vaccinated for the flu. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. All the very best. Many thanks. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You may have known or, or may not have known. Uh, does the name Merritt Stiles ring a bell to you? That is uh, the Toronto NDP MPP that is set to be acclaimed as a new party leader of the provincial NDP. Uh, not a lot has been said, uh, perhaps uh, new to the game, uh, an, M- uh, an MPP as well as former school trustee in Toronto to talk more about her and uh, the, well, uh, acclamation, I guess. Nelson Wiseman, professor with the Department of Political Science University of Toronto and is with us now. Nelson, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thank you. So your thoughts on MPP Merritt Stiles being the new leader, acclaimed, uh, it looks like coming up in March. How come no other candidate stepping up? Is she that good or nobody in the wings? Oh, I think it was just a matter that uh, other potential candidates saw that they didn't have a chance. 
so that uh, there was little point in putting up a fight, that actually they would probably be embarrassed by the result because they would run so poorly. Stiles uh, mounted a campaign uh, quite a number of months ago, and even before Andrea Horvath stepped down, she appeared to be the heir apparent. So I think a number of uh, people in the NDP caucus thought about uh, pursuing the job, but then they looked at it realistically, saw what the uh, what the odds were of their winning, and uh, threw the towel in. So, what makes her stand out, Nelson? Why is she does she to the point uh, that nobody wants to throw their hat in the ring? Well, uh, I, the reason I, they didn't throw their hat in the ring is because uh, they felt she was going to win anyways. Okay, so why was she going to win, or what, why does she stand mm-hmm. out? As you say, Scott, uh, she's been very articulate and effective in the legislature. She's quite ambitious. I think she uh, set her eyes on the leadership long before Andrea Horvath stepped down. Uh, She's really been one of their stars, if not the star, in the legislature. Um, And now she's got the crown of leading the party. Uh, And actually, um, although the NDP uh, uh, fared poorly in the last election, uh, which was just a few months ago. I mean, they dropped, I, I think, almost uh, 10% in the popular vote. The big thing is that they are the official opposition. And now that we've gone two elections in a row with the Liberals, uh, not only running third, but not even having enough seats to be recognized as an official party within the legislature, no matter who the NDP leader is, because you're the official opposition, if things turn against the conservatives, uh, then and people are looking for an alternative or they're determined to defeat the government, then they often vote for the party that they think is best positioned to do that. And although the NDP ran badly in the last election relative to the election before, they are the best positioned to do it. They won 31 seats. You know, liberals won eight even though the Liberal popular vote was more or less the same as the NDP popular vote. So the Liberals can't be happy about this, that she seems to be such a formidable candidate and leader. Yes, and when you say the Liberals, you sort of, you know, who and what are the Liberals? They don't have a leader now. They don't intend Mm. to select one until 2024. Uh, The party, I would say, is in some disarray. and the idea that the Liberals are going to elect someone before the next election, I mean, they might even put it on to 2025, isn't that bad an idea? Because usually after parties pick a new leader, uh, their popularity goes up. The problem the Liberals have is they got quite a bit of publicity last time when they selected a leader, but now it seems that their running third wasn't a one-off. And so now Mm. they have this problem. Are people going to take them seriously, just as the NDP has that problem federally, because a lot of people feel, oh, well, I might be inclined to vote NDP, but they don't have a chance of getting elected, so it would be a wasted vote. So liberals are in that position. On the other hand, what's going for the liberals, and this is quite independent of uh, who leaders are, is if you look at the NDP's base of support, it's essentially inner city. Uh, you know, the uh, places like Hamilton, Toronto, 
uh, the closer you get to the core of the city, the more uh, support there is for the party. And Stiles herself is from a downtown Toronto riding called Davenport. The Liberals, in contrast, may not have as many seats as the NDP, but they have demonstrated in the past that they're more competitive in the GTA, in in uh, in the uh, belt around Toronto, Hamilton, and more competitive in rural areas too. That's the fatal problem that the NDP has, that it has virtually no rural support. So what, do, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, liberals aren't really strong in rural Ontario either, but they have greater potential there. But what does... Their third, yeah, you know, I can't really see them becoming the government after the next election, whereas I think the NDP has an outside chance. What does Merritt Stiles bring to the discussion that Andrea Horvath didn't? What's the difference? Um, what does she have? What does one have the other one doesn't? Um, not much, I would say. Uh, indeed, I mean, what is different is it's a new face. People aren't familiar mm. with her. They haven't seen her. Now she'll get a lot more attention as the leader of the opposition. But uh, one of the differences between the NDP and the other parties is that in the NDP, when you ask what does she bring, let's say in terms of policy, according to the NDP's constitution, uh, the party's policies are what the party decides on in convention. And uh, that isn't the case with the other parties where the, the constitution is deferential to the leadership. So liberal and conservative conventions can pass all kinds of resolutions but at the end of the day, the leader of the party and his coterie or her coterie decides what the policies are, what they're going to run on. So what struck me about Stiles is, uh, and the bit of press I've read, is I didn't see any specifics in terms of new policy directions for the party. I think the party will continue to be a critic of the government. That's their job as official opposition. I think they'll continue to court unions and styles had the support of a couple of large public sector uh, private sector unions and of course i expect public sector unions will also endorse her whether public sector workers or uh, private sector workers that are unionized will vote in as mm. strong numbers as their leaders for the ndp is another question and it always has been the case Nelson Wiseman with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, Toronto NDP MPP, Merritt Stiles, set to be acclaimed as the new party leader for the provincial NDP. Nelson, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. All right. Uh, the National Post says Canada's spy agency has noted an, uh, quote, alarming escalation of espionage and foreign interference since the beginning of the pandemic, with countries like China threatening or intimidating people in Canada into namely supporting a specific electoral candidate. A veteran CSIS intelligence analyst uh, told the Council on Governmental Ethics Law uh, Conference on Monday, quote, these activities are real, they're persistent, they're increasing and it is not hypothetical. We see it every day in our work, and these activities will be targeting all levels of governments, whether it's federal, municipal, or provincial. To talk more about all of this, Phil Gursky is with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, and a former CSIS analyst, and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
I'm well, Scott. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, thanks. This seems to be pretty uh, direct uh, conversation, pretty direct accusations. I was talking to somebody on this the other day and said, what's the difference now? And what they were saying was how much people are talking about this now. Why has this seemingly increased after a global pandemic or during? Well, I'm not sure that it has increased. I'm not going to go against my former CSIS colleague, Scott, but you know this is a phenomenon we've been monitoring, we being the security intelligence community, for decades. And mm-hmm. we've been warning the government about it. I think maybe the reason why it's getting so much attention now is the perception, perhaps, the government doesn't care. So we had a prime minister claim he wasn't briefed on foreign interference in the, in the, in the last election, and that he said it wasn't significant. And maybe there are people saying, well, it probably is significant, and it probably does matter. So maybe this is... You might be sensing a, a, a bit of frustration on the part of CSIS, who will be giving this message, as I said, for decades. It's been ignored by successive governments of both political stripes. And maybe there's a sense of how loud do we have to shout to get you to guys start, start paying attention to it? So uh, are more people talking about it? Is this because it seems to certainly be in the media a lot more this week than it has in the past? I've seen more op-ed pieces about Chinese and Russian interference in our societies, whether it's intimidation of people like the Uyghurs or Tibetans, uh, both of whom I've met in Canada, they are being harassed by Chinese intelligence and Chinese embassy officials, as well as Russian, you know, trolls and, and bots and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's getting a lot of attention now. And, and again, maybe it's because these people writing the op-ed pieces want the government to, to set up and pay attention that this is a threat to our democracy. It undermines confidence in democracy, undermines trust in our democracy. And there's a clamor for the government to take some action in this regard and stop ignoring it as they have been for the last 20 years or so. We've heard of police stations that have been set up across Canada, various outlets uh, from uh, the Chinese Communist Party, that these were sort of to help Chinese Canadians, whether it's getting licensing or, you know, fitting into wherever they are. Um but we really didn't see what it was or, or, or much. I'm seeing news reports now that these police stations are like inside convenience stores or inside other businesses. They're not necessarily legitimate buildings. Well, exactly. And as you know, you know, if you're trying to set up an illicit way to monitor Chinese citizens or whatever in another country, would you be so bold as to put it into something that looks official? Of course you wouldn't. It's subterfuge. It's a way of hiding in, in plain sight in, in a way. And I'm really glad to see the RCMP and other agencies uh, pointing out this fact and saying we're looking into this because this is a threat, as I said, to our society as Canadians. And, you know, the Chinese excuses that, oh, they're just there to you know help China, the Chinese people fill out their passport forms. Come on. I mean, does anybody really believe that? If that's true, Scott, then I'm an NHL goaltender. And trust me, my friend, mm-hmm. I'm no NHL goaltender. Uh, you, you talked about people who are being harassed here uh, or, or being um, uh, asked to do things uh, in support of the Chinese Communist Party or such. Can Chinese Canadians do anything? Uh, can they uh, uh, report this anywhere? Or are, are they pretty much uh, uh, at the government, the Chinese government's peril in fear of retaliation? Well, they certainly are fearful because the Chinese will make it quite clear that if you don't cooperate or don't stop criticizing the PRC and the Communist Party of China, as you just alluded to, uh, you know, your family may in fact suffer back home, either harassment or detention, whatever. Can they do something? Absolutely. They can call CSIS. They can call the RCMP and say this is what's going on. Because unless CSIS and the RCMP get these types of phone calls or emails from the community that's being affected, they won't know exactly how pervasive the strategy by the Chinese is. And that's a, that's a form of intelligence for those agencies that they can act upon it. So, you know, the same way, Scott, we talk about 
you know, if you see something strange that might indicate the possibility of something terrorist related, the so-called see it, say it program that came after 9-11, if that works for counterterrorism, this should work for counterintelligence as well. Uh, we talked about there's been lots of chatter about interfering in the past federal election. Um, would these citizens be willing partners or are they being harassed into doing this? Or is it a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both. There certainly would be people here in Canada who are, are fans of, of the, the PRC. They, you know, they haven't, uh, their loyalty is still to the PRC and to the Communist Party of China. But an awful lot of them, too, are just individuals who maybe fled the Chinese regime to get a better life here in Canada and are being followed and are being intimidated by, by the Chinese government. So it's hard for me to give an answer in terms of what the percentage would be. I wouldn't be surprised if it's, if it's a bit of both. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that we can't allow this to happen. In Canada, where we have a foreign power that is not a friend, by the way, uh, having an effect on our elections, even if the prime minister said it was insignificant, the mere fact that it's happening, that's the significant part, because as I said, it erodes our trust in our democracies. It seems the federal government hasn't been real quick to jump on this, although is starting to change the tune now. Uh, how does Canada combat this? What can we do? Is there something we can do to stop this? Well, something as simple as you can start turfing out diplomats. I mean, you know, if there are people in consulates across the country, whether they're official or not, engaged in activity that's inimical to our interests, we have the full power. They're not Canadian citizens. Uh, they're here under diplomatic status. And if, if their activities are not consistent with those of a diplomatic status, we can uh, PNG, the persona non grata. It happens all the time. It happened during the Cold War with the Soviets. It can happen now. Now, there'll be retaliation by the Chinese uh, turfing out Canadians in Beijing, but we have to send the message that we're not, we're not sta- we don't stand for this anymore. Uh, now that we see, uh, you know, police stations are actually in the back of convenience stores or such and not really anything official in any way, does that change public perception of all of this? Will this uh, now really get these sorts of operations investigated? I sincerely hope so. Uh, but like I said, you know, we have governments that have been ignoring this threat, despite the fact it's been plainly given, it's been plainly explained to them by CSIS and the RCMP for many, many years. I don't know, Scott. Uh, I, I, you know, I've lived a long time, and I know that these stories they certainly make a big splash when they're out there. But in a couple of days' time, they kind of fritter away. That's the, I guess that's human nature. It becomes kind of old news, and we move on to something else. Like you know, will the Leafs make the playoffs this year or something? Um, I wish Canadians were a little more invested in what national security is all about and threats to our democracy. But uh, I fear uh, human nature is human nature, and we'll move on to another story a week from now. Uh, the golden goose too valuable here. Too much trade, too much business. We just turned a blind eye to this. That's been, I think, the line for decades is that, as you said, we do a lot of trade with China. A lot of Canadian businesses are, you know, are invested very heavily economically and financially in China. And if we rock the boat, the Chinese will cut us off. So the, you know, they cut the Australians off recently when, when, the, when the Australian government made remarks critical of the, of, uh, of the PRC and, and the CCP. And I think maybe people said, look, you know, if we raise our head up above the parapet and say something the Chinese don't like, um, we're on the outs. And maybe the, the, the calculus is that we can't afford to do that as an economy. To me, that's a pretty weak excuse. I yeah. think a lot of people we can certainly trade with, but that's my fear. I think that's, that's the kind of rationale that's been used for decades in this country. Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst. As always, Phil, thanks for the time. Be well.
You too, sir. Take care. We were talking to a doctor earlier on today and um, and specifically around the situation with um, hospital rates. Uh, obviously, our healthcare staff exhausted coming off a pandemic and then going into uh, an era of kids that are incredibly sick, whether it's from the flu or it is from uh, a respiratory virus that is going around. COVID-19 is pretty much waned. It's pretty much behind us. But uh, these other illnesses compiled or compounded with uh, a shortage of kids' medication or medicine in general in Canada for some reason. Uh, our hospitals are going through a tough time. I was talking to a doctor earlier on and said, um, you know, uh, NASI recommends, and I'm looking at it right now, um, National Associ- um, NASI is National, Associ- National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Sorry, National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Remember, uh, NASI and Health Canada were constantly giving contradictory advice uh, in regard to COVID-19 vaccines. They now say the influenza vaccine should continue to be offered to anyone six months of age or older who does not have contradictions to the vaccine uh, and provides a list of groups whom influenza vaccination is particularly recommended. But as the doctor mentioned, it was anybody over six months of age. I remember, you know, if you weren't an old person, you probably didn't bother with the flu vaccine. Now we are where we are. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. He is with us now. Scott, have, did you get your flu shot this year? I have not. And, and you mentioned about the kids, uh, you know, the kids' medicine. I, I don't know if you can get kids' medicine, but I can tell you where you can find a few million doses of COVID vaccine. I know. Yeah, ask the Auditor General. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's what happens when you're late to the game and then you buy everything you can, hoping something will come through. And then when it does... Uh, even the stuff that went out to underprivileged countries, it was far, far, far lower than what was reported. No, I have not had my flu vaccine. I don't know if I will have it, honestly. And that's not because I'm an anti-vaxxer or something like that. I, I traditionally don't get it. Mostly because, Scott, and I, I, I don't know that there's any science behind this, but the one or two times it seems that I have had it, a, a flu shot have been the years I've got the flu. I don't know if it's just a fluke. And so now it's like, okay, I don't know if it's Murphy's Law or what. Wait a sec. (laughs) But uh, it's so I've, again, it's it's really, it's nothing to do with not believing in the shots or something. I just, I'm... I, I sort of wax and wane. I do sometimes. I don't. And there's no real rhyme or reason to it. You know, I was getting mine prior to the pandemic. And then, you know, because I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I should. I'm getting older, blah, blah, blah. And then I didn't get it during the pandemic because I had everything else. It and you weren't near anybody. And yeah, yeah. Um, although I did get, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I had the flu or whatever a few weeks ago uh, when I came back. But um, but yeah, I'll probably get it next year. But again, here we are discussing that as middle aged or older guys or older people. Well, um, I'm surprised. I'm surprised <laughs> that you know she. This doctor said it's the kids that are in hospital. It's the kids that are getting this flu. They're the ones that need vaccinated. And I don't think I've ever really heard the message reinforced, you know, uh, as well as the older people, you should get your kids vaccinated. In other words, everyone, I haven't heard against the flu that is vaccinated against the flu. I've never heard that message. I would still love to get one straight, consistent answer about whether or not all the mask wearing and social distancing and kids being away from each other has lowered their 
Of course it has. I've heard more epidemiologists say that. I've only only heard one that said the opposite, and that was Dr. Colin Furness. Okay. And and, and we haven't heard much from him lately. But no, uh, again, that's the reason the flu was down so low during during the pandemic was because we're all masked up. Now we've got low immunity. So absolutely to the part about, yes, why we had less flu, almost no flu last year. But the question is, I know some people have said it. I've heard more than one person say, no, it's got nothing to do with it. One person on my show, I can't remember who the name of the person, but one person a few days or weeks ago on my show said, no, it's got nothing to do with it. It's just this whatever's going around. But as I said, I, I would love to know whether we whether it's the official authorized known position that what we've done inadvertently in, in an attempt to try and do the right thing, if we've solved one problem by creating another. And if that's the case, if that's the case for sure, by now, you know, Hamilton School Board putting a mask mandate back in or whatever else, are we again no, solving no. a problem by extending a problem? And creating another one. Again, I can think of about six or seven epidemiologists who we use over the course of this pandemic, and there's only one that has disagreed with the immunity. And I'm sure if you dig down their scientific stuff to, to, to lean on one side or the other. But again, the reason that the flu rate was so low in the past couple of years is because we were all masked no up question. and we were mere no masks. And then, of course, as soon as you take them off, boom. And, and what's happened this year is nothing new. It happens every single year. And this virus, the respiratory virus, will be back again next year. Nothing new here. It's just how we've approached it to this point. But have we created a situation now, Scott? And this, again, I'd love to get a, a, a solid answer on this one, and I've not got one. So Keep asking. Uh, no, but so, so thank you. Uh, so we've, we've now got the immunization, or the, our, our response is lower. Our ability to fight it off is lower, so we wear masks again. Are we now in a position where we essentially have to go through this kind of thing to build up our immune system again, or are we talking about in perpetuity now for the rest of time eternal, we are going to have to wear masks during flu season? Remember, the reason we are wearing masks, whether it was for COVID or for the flu, is not to stop people from dying. Now, there are people who are extremely vulnerable who get sick by the flu. That happens every single year. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, uh, you can't... Uh, I forgot the point that I was going to make. <laughs> no, but we, like, we, have, we have parents. For, for years, the comment has been like parents in the old days used to let their kids go out and play and they'd play in dirt. They play in mud yeah, and they have, yeah, yeah. and it built up immunity to yeah. stuff. And we don't do that. Kids are way cleaner now. Now it's lovely that they're way cleaner. Our society allows for this, but it also, there are, you know, this is one of the things that some people have proposed for why allergies, peanut allergies and other yeah, allergies yeah, are so that. much higher. And so do we need to somehow allow kids, not the horrible respiratory things that are causing serious, but do we almost need kids to go through this again and deal with a flu? Not fun. Or are we simply saying, no, from now on, just every winter, we're going to wear a mask because this is now our reality. I don't know the answer. I clearly don't know the answer to that. Uh, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. I've been canceled. I've been reset. 
and now I'm being woke. My taxes are going up, and our prime minister just visits our country. Is he an expat prime minister? I want answers to these questions because I own a pipeline. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.